Our scripture reading today is from the fifth chapter of Matthew, verses 43 through 48. Love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Thanks. Welcome. It's great to see all of you here. If you're joining us online, we're so happy that you're here with us. Well, we're finishing up the, you have heard that it was said, but I say to use statements in the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus has been progressing through his teaching on the law, he has been trying to show us that not only does our righteousness not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, but it falls so, so woefully short. He's been showing us a higher and higher standard as he's been going along. And here at the culmination of this section, we should feel a great, great burden, a deep longing, a deep reality of our spiritual poverty, and a deep hunger for his righteousness. Let me pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be present here right now. Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word, which you have given to us to comfort, challenge us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folk tales are common human expressions of our values. Folk tales throughout history all follow common themes, common tropes, including many Disney movies. The heroes of the story overcome evil and live happily ever after. The evil enemies are destroyed, done away with. In The Three Little Pigs, the pigs live happily ever after in the snug brick house. And the big bad wolf, the enemy, is cooked into soup in a pot. In Snow White, the vain, evil stepmother, the witch, dies after falling off a cliff, while Snow White awakes from her slumber after the prince kisses her, and they live happily ever after. In Frozen, the sneaky Hans is eventually arrested and exiled from the kingdom for his duplicity, while Elsa and Anna live happily ever after in a castle with no closed doors, no longer locked up, at least until Frozen 2. Examples abound because we, as humans, identify with this desire to see evil punished and good triumph. We want to see those who have wronged us, those who have hurt us, paid back. In our passage, the Lord Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is a semi-quote from the Old Testament, a modified quote, if you will, from Leviticus 19, 
where the Lord, teaching God's people, states, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The text nowhere says, hate your enemy. That doesn't exist in this quote. It was an addition, but an addition accepted in Jesus' day. A a contemporary sect, religious sect of Jesus' day, the Qumran sect, had a saying, love the brother, hate the outsider. It was commonly accepted. In verse 44, Jesus explains the depths of what God calls his people to, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. If we are honest, we struggle with loving even our close friends and family, let alone neighbors or enemies. One commentator sex suggests that Jesus' words here are utterly alien to us. We can't fathom them when we really dig into them. There's a sinful human tendency to love those we get along with, to love those who are good back to us, and narrowly define neighbor to those we like and are good to us, narrowly define who's in and broadly define who's out. But here, at the climax of his teaching on the true meaning of God's law, Jesus wants to teach us that we have been saved by a loving, gracious Father. So let us seek to imitate his love and grace even to our enemies. We have been saved by a loving, gracious Father. So let us seek to imitate his love and grace even to our enemies. And we're going to unpack that through three points. Decent love, divine love, and perfection. First, Jesus teaches us that it is not enough to just have a decent love. Common decent love is something that even those who don't know God have. In verses 46 to 47, Jesus explains that a common decent love is not enough for his people. First, Jesus says that if we simply love those who love us back, there's no reward for us. You haven't done anything special. It's easy and decent and normal to love those who love you. There's nothing particularly praiseworthy or special in loving those who have first loved you. He goes on to say, do not even tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors would have been the most despised people of Jesus' day. Their reputation was horrible. They were part of the oppressors, the Roman Empire. Tax collectors were basically rich criminals who betrayed their own people, took as much as they could get from those people, and then gave the Roman Empire their cut. But Jesus' point is that even those disgusting, horrible, cheating, betraying tax collectors love their own tax collector buddies. There's nothing special or commendable in that. Don't pat yourself on the back for doing that is what Jesus is saying. Second, he uses another complimentary example. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Jesus uses this example of greeting someone back to indicate returning a favor, doing something in return. Again, this is not praiseworthy, he says. This is decent, normal, to be expected. So Jesus says, do not even Gentiles do the same. Gentiles were non-Jews, outsiders, pagans, those far from God. If living today, Jesus might have said, don't even atheists do the same? The letter of James speaks against showing partiality to the rich and powerful. See, this was a problem in the early church because in Greco-Roman society, patronage was the common currency of relationships. A higher status patron would do good things for a lower status client. But there was an expected return of favors, obligations that the client would 
take the patron's interest to heart and serve and help them. This is similar to the decent love which Jesus speaks against here. We are not to have a quid pro quo understanding of love, a favor for a favor understanding of love. That's not what we are called to. And after speaking against this patron-client culture, which led to partiality to the rich and powerful, James says in James 2, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In summary of this section, followers of Jesus should do more than what is common among non-believers in the way they show love. We are called to so much more than just a decent love. Is our love merely decent? Is the type of normal love that everyone and anyone has and shows to friends, family, and neighbors, is that what we are characterized by? Sadly, our love isn't off, often isn't even decent. Sometimes we hate those who love us. Sometimes we treat those created in God's image as expendable, as trash, as curseworthy. But you see, the problem with this, with ordinary decency, is that it counterfeits God-like love. Our decent love is dangerous because we can be lulled into thinking well of ourselves simply for doing the bare minimum. We can pat ourselves on the back as having fulfilled God's call and demands by simple token decency. Returning favors or returning love for love can actually be motivated by self-interest. We know that people respond well to us, and so we're good to them first so that they are then good to us in return. We get to benefit out of it that's not the type of love God calls his people to. One way we can practically think about and apply this is in a comment that a friend of mine made, effectively said, many churches seem cold and unwelcoming to visitors, but almost every church thinks it is friendly. Why? Because the members are friendly with their friends. They greet everyone who greets them. Genuine love, though, keeps an eye open for the quiet the awkward, the friendless, and genuine love goes and seeks them out. See, decent love says, I'll love love you as long as you love me in return, in equal measure. It says, I'll love you until you hurt me, and then I'll repay you back, or I'll ostracize you, I'll treat you horribly. Decent love doesn't press in when hurt. It doesn't seek the best of others. It doesn't stay when hard times come along, but it flees when things get awkward, difficult, costly. Decent love runs away when it is not paid back in kind, when it is not reciprocated in the same measure that we feel we have loved others. So the first thing we're confronted with is that we need to confess and repent where we have become satisfied and complacent with a decent love that the world has. We are called to so much more. We are called to a divine love. In this passage, Jesus calls us to a love without limits, a divine love that imitates God the Father. And so Jesus explains in verses 44 to 45, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In verse 45, Jesus calls us to love our enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
Now, Jesus doesn't mean that we earn our place as children of God by loving like God does. He's saying that we demonstrate the reality that we are sons of God by becoming like him. To love our enemies is to live a life patterned after God. It's imitating God's love. The Bible often calls us to imitate God. One passage is in Ephesians 5, where uh, Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And what type of love does God have that we should imitate? Due to sin, all humanity is God's enemies. Colossians 1.21 explains that without Christ, we are alienated and hostile in mind towards God. Children of wrath, another passage says. Romans 5.10 teaches that due to our sin and separation from God, we are his enemies. But here in our passage, Jesus explains that we are to love people like God loves them, selflessly, sacrificially, even though they are our enemies. Verse 45 continues, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In a farming, agricultural society, sun and rain were essential to life. Without them, you couldn't have crops and food would be impossible. God is gracious, loving, and kind with the good and the evil, the just and the unjust, people who shake their fist at heaven and people who kneel in prayer. He's equally kind to them all, this passage says. Dan Dorani commented on this passage, says, if this is who God is, then we should shower our enemies and friends with acts of loving kindness. And I think the biblical witness shows that this is who our God is, a God of relentless love. God's love selflessly, sacrificially pursues his enemies to bring about their ultimate good, their salvation. Jesus' teaching here actually follows through on the originally quoted passage of Leviticus. God in Leviticus 19, 17 to 18 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance on him or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jay Sklar commenting on this passage says, in short, the Lord's people must address the wrong but always with the goal of restoring relationship. This too is holy living, for it is how the Holy Lord shows his generous love to those who sin against him. All of us are God's enemies because of our sin, but he shows love and grace to us by trying to seek to restore us into a relationship with himself. In Leviticus 19, later on in verse 33, God says, when a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God says to the people of God in Leviticus, the law book, that you are to treat strangers as if they are your brothers. This is the same message. Jesus is unpacking the same message that has been present in the entire biblical witness we are to love like God loves. There are many other Bible verses about God's great love and our love for enemies. When the people of God rebelled against him and worshiped idols right after he delivered them out of Israel, 
Instead of destroying them, God declared to Moses his essential character. He said in Exodus 34, the Lord, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is who our God is, a God of overflowing love. Many Old Testament passages actually called for kindness towards enemies. Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him a drink. If, or sorry, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. You are to look out for the physical needs of your enemy. Exodus 23, 4 to 5 reads, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Exodus calls the people of God to be so concerned with their enemy's good that if you see his property, his animal hurting, you are to take care of it and return it to him in an act of kindness. We are called to pursue a love without limits, a love that's unrestricted, a love which imitates God's love. Again, God's love selflessly, sacrificially pursues his enemies to bring about their ultimate good, their very salvation. In 2015, an absolute tragedy occurred at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Dylan Roof shot nine members of a Bible study who were gathered for prayer and scripture reading. Nadine Collier, whose mother and friends were murdered, had an opportunity to address Dylan in the court proceedings where he was sentenced. Collier choked back tears as she forgave him, saying, you took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again, but I forgive you and I have mercy on your soul. If God forgives you, I forgive you. This is incredible. Loving our enemies looks like loving people even when it hurts incredibly, even when it is costly, even when society looks at you and says, you are foolish, how can you forgive a person like that? This type of supernatural love has been made possible for so many Christians throughout history because they first knew and experienced the love of God when they were his enemies. Is our love exceptional? and extraordinary? Can our love for others not be explained in natural terms? This is a difficult question we all need to ask ourselves. See, we often want to limit our love. We think, well, I'll love this type of person, but no way can I be expected to love that type of person. Or we think, do you not know what that person has done to me? How could I love them? but we are called to a love without limits, a love that has no restrictions, an unlimited love. Earlier I mentioned that decent love says, I'll love you as long as you love me in equal measure. Well, I think that divine love says, I'm going to love you and seek your good despite your mistreatment, your hostility, and your animosity towards me. I'm gonna seek your good even if you don't care one whit about me. Divine love doesn't flee when things get difficult, but it presses into the relationship. It works for the good of the other person. It takes the cost of maintaining that relationship. 
I think this is what Peter meant when he wrote in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we think about this passage, and we read this passage, and we might think, who is an enemy? We might not think we have any enemies. We might never in our life have an enemy like Dylan Roof was for Nadine Collier. The biblical word, though, actually means more than simply an enemy, like France is the historical, traditional enemy of Great Britain. The word is much broader, actually. The word translated enemy here actually means one with whom you have personal hostility, personal opposition. With that understanding, we see that enemy can be more broadly defined and considered. Let us not excuse ourselves by saying, well, I don't have any enemies, so this doesn't really apply to me. This and other Bible passages calls us to love everyone as God loves them. Those who treat us well, those who treat us poorly, those who have mistreated and hurt us and are opposed to us, those who are our enemies, we are to love them all as God loves them. We all struggle to love others if we're honest. At times we may even feel that friends, family, co-workers, fellow church members are enemies. We might feel that way, right? Not that we attack them physically, not that we wish them harm, but that we are in opposition to each other. Have you ever felt this? I certainly have at times. For example, maybe in an intense disagreement with a spouse where you feel personally attacked, you felt in your heart, in your head, man, we're enemies. My wife and I, were from two very different cultures, And this is a good thing, something that's blessed us and been beneficial for us in so many ways because we've learned so much from each other. However, it can also be very challenging at times as we have different cultural assumptions and backgrounds from parenting to responsibilities as husband or wife to finances to hospitality to communication and so much more. We come from different areas. And so disagreements can arise. Concerning these issues, my wife and I can sometimes have disagreements that make us feel like we are enemies, opposed to each other. And we have to, in that moment, press in to the relationship, pray for one another, remember that we are for each other's good, and despite hurt feelings and feelings of animosity, we need to move towards each other in loving service. At times when we have had those disagreements, when we have felt hurt intensely, I cannot express to you how much it's like cool water to my soul when my wife kindly makes lunch for me the next day to take to work. She is loving her enemy at times. So what can we do when we feel like close loved ones are enemies? Well, a few things, and this is just my own reflections. First, we need to recognize a few things. The other individual is created in God's image, worthy of Jesus having died for them. If that's true, how can we wish them any sort of harm? Next, we need to recognize that disagreements and differences of opinions don't mean we don't love one another. It just means we disagree. Disagreement does not equal sin, necessarily. But even if somebody has sinned against us, the Bible calls us to love them enough to gently go and point out their sin and seek their good and reconciliation. That should be a priority for us. Some practical things that we can do when we feel like close loved ones are enemies. This passage calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Prayer for others 
whether they're persecutors, enemies, or those who are simply opposed to us, prayer can cause deeper love for them in us. Prayer for others cultivates love for them in our hearts. So let us press into prayer when we have these moments of feeling like enemies are around us. Another thing we should do is we should go and talk to the individual, talk with them, not about them to others. We should go and ask them questions, not assume we know what they're thinking or what they're doing. And finally, we must be relentlessly for the other person's good, because that is how God has approached us as his enemies, being relentlessly for our good, our salvation. So we've seen that Jesus calls us to more than just a decent, normal love. He calls us to a divine love, a love that imitates God's love for his sinful, rebellious creatures. But if that was not difficult enough, Jesus closes out this section of his teaching on the law with the sweeping statement of verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect. What, Jesus? We must be perfect? How can I possibly be perfect? Jesus has taken this difficult high bar that he already set back in verse 20, that we need to have a righteousness which exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter heaven. And he's completely blown that high bar out of the water. Not only do we need to be more holy than the most holy individuals, but we need perfection. How can we even contemplate entering heaven if that is the case? And left to ourselves, you cannot. I cannot. We cannot enter into heaven on our own standard. None of us will ever approach perfection. God rightfully, justly hates sin. Sin is the antithesis of who he is and what he values. God does not want to dwell with sin. It's like oil and water. They won't mix. He can't be around our sin. God is perfect, holy in all of his ways. To be with him, we must be sinless, perfect, or at least we have to be made sinless and perfect as we trust in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, in response to someone critiquing him for not caring for the Sermon on the Mount, wrote, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? C.S. Lewis had such a way with words. He goes on, I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this passage with tranquil pleasure. We are only one chapter into the Sermon on the Mount's three chapters, and each section should have felt like one humiliating blow after another, as each one of us should have felt we are not enough. Our goodness is so far below the bar. If you've been able to sit and listen to these passages explained without feeling the depth of your spiritual need, then you may not have accurately understood. Our situation is desperate and hopeless left to ourselves. Jesus didn't say all this to discourage us, but to encourage us and extend hope to us because we have been saved by him and we can grow in holiness and one day, will be perfectly like him, our Savior. You see, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
This word must be perfect is interesting because in the original language, the verb tense can either be a command or a promise. It could read must be perfect or will be perfect. You will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, a promise. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, a command. What does the word perfect here mean? It means complete, mature, sanctified, made like Jesus Christ. We know from the entire biblical witness that God has extended and promised perfection to us in Jesus Christ as he takes our sin away and gives us his perfect spotless record and righteousness. Jesus has taken our sin if we believe in him. He has washed it clean so that we are spotless, white as snow in his presence. Jesus' sinless perfection becomes ours and he takes our sinful imperfections having nailed them to the cross, and we are saved. God promises that one day we will be perfect, made into new creations without sin anymore, able to love as he loves completely and perfectly. See, it is important that what Jesus says in verse 48 is both a command and a promise. If it was only a promise, then we would probably just live our lives however we want right now, doesn't matter what I do right now, I will be perfect one day. If it was only a command, then we would grow hopeless, discouraged, frustrated as we fail again and again and again. But what Jesus says here is both a command and a promise. And so we can strive day by day in the power of his spirit to live like Christ and like he commands us to. And we can have hope looking forward to the promise that one day we will be completely remade to be exactly like Christ with no more sin in our lives. I love this illustration that a seminary professor shared with me. This already not yet tension that I just explained can be illustrated in World War II and the invasion of France. On D-Day, the Allied troops invaded France on the beaches of Normandy, and on that moment, the victory and liberation of Europe was begun. And looking back, we can see that that was when it happened and was secured and achieved. But the reality was that there were still pockets of resistance. There was still fighting that went on, (laughs) intense, difficult fighting that went on for a long time after D-Day until finally V-Day, Victory Day, was declared when the Axis, Germany and their allies, surrendered to the allies. D-Day was when victory was achieved, or was begun. V-Day was when it was finally secured. And the already not yet tension of what we live in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is that same tension. Victory has been begun in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, but is not yet finally secured and realized in our own individual lives. And so we struggle, we fight with sin, we live in this broken, sin-impacted world already not yet between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, when all sin will be wiped away forever. And because we live in this already not yet tension, we struggle to be perfect as he was perfect. We continue to sin. We fail to love one another. We struggle to make wise and good decisions. And we, as a church community, as EP Church right now, are going through a difficult time. We are struggling. We have difficult disagreements. Maybe some of those decisions that EP's 
leadership has made recently has hurt some of you. That would be understandable. Maybe it feels like there are enemies here at EP Church. But I ask you that you trust that everyone involved is trying to seek the good of others. Nobody is acting with malicious intent. We ask that you seek out people to reconcile, to understand, to love those who feel like enemies at times. The leadership I know is so sorry if any of the decisions that have been made hurt anybody, and they want to hear that. They don't want to turn a blind eye to that. They want to know. They want to discuss. And if you have been hurt, I ask that you love them enough to go to them in person and tell them, this really hurt me. You need to hear this. I know they want to hear it. Let's talk with one another. Let's have more than decent love. Let's not flee one another. Let's press into relationship. Let's make stumbling steps towards this divine love that Jesus calls us to have. As we live in this already not yet period, the D-Day has been accomplished, but the V-Day, complete victory, awaits us. How do we live in this tension? We need to have hope in Jesus' promise which should give us strength day by day, even as we fail, to say the victory is assured and one day it will be fully realized. A recent Disney movie that does not follow the common trope of evil being destroyed and good living happily ever after is the movie Moana. The evil volcano Teka is not destroyed, but is actually restored into the good, life-giving island Tefiti. The one who caused the original destruction, Maui, is not punished or destroyed. He's forgiven by Tefiti. When he returns the heart to her, she blesses him. In a similar manner, each one of us have corrupted and destroyed hearts. Hearts corrupted and destroyed by sin. But in Jesus Christ, we are restored. The enemy, us, is not eternally punished but is forgiven. Grace and love is extended to us. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter reminds us that the Lord is patient and slow to bring about final judgment because he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If our God, who is the creator and king of everything and is right and just to be angered by our animosity, our being his enemy, extends this type of forgiveness and grace to us, should we not imitate him in loving our enemies and seeking reconciliation with all? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning reflecting and grateful that you have extended such a grace and forgiveness to us. Thankful that though we were your enemies, though we were far from you, cut off from all relationship with you. You extended mercy and grace and forgiveness when we did not deserve it. You loved us with such an everlasting, relentless love that was for our good, that you sacrificed your own son. Jesus, you died for us that we might have life. Thank you that in you we are saved, restored to the Father. In light of all this, God, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, we might imitate you in loving all around us, loving those who feel like enemies, loving those who might very well be enemies. 
please, we need your help because we cannot do this supernatural act on our own. Left to our own, all we can do is have a decent love. And even that is difficult at times. Lord, we desperately need you. We pray, give us the power and strength to have a supernatural, divine love without limits. Pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.